On today's episode of Power View, we'll be giving a snapshot overview of the United Nations and its role as the international authority for countries around the world to come together to address the problems we face globally to find, as they describe it themselves, shared resolutions that benefit all of humanity. He's Jordan. I'm Braden. Together, we are the Realist Idealists, and this is Power View. So, to uh, start us off, we're going to look at why the United Nations was formed. And to do that, we kind of got to backtrack just just a little bit back to um, First World War and the creation of the League of Nations due to the horrors that occurred out of the First World War, which was basically the first industrialized war. And the use of certain types of weapons that had, such as gas, that had long-term effects on not just the soldiers, but the civilian populations as well. And to prevent that scale of death and destruction on happening so easily again, because as we all know, the first world war was started by a single gunshot that killed Gavel Princep and it led to a four year conflict and 30 million casualties. So the league of nations was then formed at the Paris treaty in 1920 and I believe it was only about 48 nations originally that actually ended up be, like joining the League of Nations. But throughout, I guess, the 1920s, the 30s, and into the 40s, the League of Nations had mandates. And it's very, the structure was similar to what we're used to seeing in the UN today, but it didn't actually have, it didn't act directly and it didn't have the levels of, I guess, checks and balances, for lack of a better word. There was no intent, like, in sense, there wasn't any um, security council. There wasn't, like, um, a broader inclusion of more nations as well, even though at the time there was a lot of countries that were still actually being controlled through colonial powers, which is kind of where it failed because in its mandate, Germany rearmed itself right in front of them. And it failed to allow, and it failed from not just Germany, but a lot of other countries that were already members of the League from doing the same thing Germany did even before Germany started annexing other places like Czechoslovakia. And like um, Japan went into Manchuria. Um, there was also Italy and Somalia as well. And that all happened before Germany started moving with Hitler into seizing old territory lost due to the first world war so obviously as we all know that led to the second world war <laughs> which then after the second world war we know ends with the dropping of the two atomic bombs which leads to the creation of the united nations in 1946 which is when the league of nations is dissolved or in this case i guess absorbed into the larger structure that is the united nations today and when the un was established It came about in a sense where there was more sense of um, duty to actually prevent even because the scale of the Second World War obviously was much worse than the First World War. So again, during the foundation of the United Nations, <laughs> at the end of the Second World War, there was 
a few major components that we're going to look at. And the first one's going to be Article 1 of the United Nations. And I'm just going to read their quote from it. This is off their website as well. The purpose of the United Nations is to maintain international peace and security, and to that end, to take effective collective measures for the preservation and the removal of threats to the peace and for the repression, sorry, and for the suppression of acts of aggression and other breaches of peace. And to bring about peaceful means and in conformity with the principles of justice and international law, adjustment or settlement of international disputes or situations which might lead to a breach of the peace. So already there's a big difference between the League of Nations and the United Nations right there. The League of Nations, when it was founded, had no binding charter. So at the end of the Second World War, there was a lot more nations also invited to become part of it in this decision-making process. So now that we've looked at Article 1, um, we're going to now kind of expand a little more into that with the four pillars of the United Nations. And I'm just going to give you guys a quick briefing of what the four pillars is as described on the United Nations website. So there's a preamble that they have here that I'm just going to, uh, it's, I'm reading this right off the web, website, excuse me. <laughs> so I'm just going to quote it here quick. It is, we the peoples of the United Nations determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind and to reframe faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women of nations large and small, and to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained, and to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. The preamble describes four areas that are the pillars of the UN, and that's what we're going to take a quick look at is the four pillars of the United Nations. And I'm just going to pull that up here because I made little notes for myself. <laughs> so we're going to look at all four of them quickly and briefly. And the first one being peace and security. So again, there's just little snippets I have. This is off of the uh, UN.org website. So it's available to anyone. And to save, so the first one is peace and security. So it's just a brief summary is to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which is, we just read this out of the preamble, twice in our lifetime has brought sorrow to mankind. The Security Council is the main organ responsible for maintaining international peace and security, although other organs such as the General Assembly and the Secretariat play important roles in making recommendations and assisting in the resolution of armed conflicts. Uh, number two is human rights. I'm going to be really brief on this one because we're actually uh, we're going to get much further into this very soon after we're done talking about the United Nations. The UN Char Charter also begins by affirming faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women of nations large and small. And then number three we have is the rule of law. So it aims to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from trees and other sources of international law can be maintained. In order to develop and prosper, human beings must be able to look to the state for security and protection and to be able to exercise their individual rights. This cannot happen without the rule of law. 
The rule of law refers to the principle of governments in which all those persons, public and private institutions, including the state itself, are accountable to laws that are consistent with international human rights, norms and standards. And lastly is number fourth is development. The fourth declared aim of the United Nations is to promote social progress and better standards in life and larger freedom. The Economic and Social Council, which I think some people may have heard of it, it's the ECO, E-C-O-S-O-C-O. You might have seen it, like they come around, it's like they work with the UNICEF too, I believe, is the organ most associated with achieving their, this goal. It's responsible for coordinating development mandates of 14 UN special agencies and five regional commissions. In addition, the ECOSOC consults with academics, business representatives, and more than 2,100 registered non-governmental organizations. So right there, we get a bit of an idea that the UN has more of a foundation than the League did, and that they have these four, basically, pillars that they are what their purpose of being is and what they what they try to achieve by through general, general assemblies and the security council and creation of treaties yeah like the overall foundation of the un is built what upon it, those four pillars yes yeah. thank you yeah so as jordan mentioned already who makes up the united nations there are technically six organs that make up the United Nations, but for the purpose of today's episode, we'll be focusing on three of the six. First up, we have the Secretary General of the UN. As the UN describes it, the Secretary General is a symbol of the United Nations ideals and a spokesperson for the interests for the, the world's peoples, in particular, the poor and the vulnerable among them. Essentially, the security Essentially, the Secretary General is the figurehead of the United Nations. They oversee the operations of all parts of the United Nations to ensure everything is functioning as it should. They also represent the role of a diplomat for the United Nations, being, the ad being an advocate for global issues, as well as having the ability to bring specific concerns to the attention of the Security Council, who we'll be speaking about shortly. Next up, we have the General Assembly. The General Assembly is the main body of the United Nations, as it's, the, as it's made up of the members of, within the United Nations. There are 193 member states that make up the General Assembly. As members of the General Assembly, these are the only countries recognized internationally by all other nations. With this membership, these countries have the ability to vote on international issues and initiatives that are brought forth to the General Assembly. This is arguably the most important role of the General Assembly, as it is their votes that decide what resolutions pass within the UN. A two-thirds vote in favor is needed for a decision to pass. The UN General Assembly is also responsible for approving the nominees for the role of Secretary General, as well as the non-permanent members of the Security Council. The General Assembly is also able to bring forward discussion questions that are not being discussed by the UN Security Council. The member states of the General Assembly also make up the members of the different councils that make up the United Nations, like 
the Economic and Security Council that Jordan mentioned earlier. Under Article 2 of the UN's Charter, all member states are to be considered sovereign states. This means that they have the right to govern themselves how they see fit without the interference of foreign factors. And number three on our list, who we have brought up a few times already, is the Security Council. Now, arguably, the Security Council is probably the most important organ of the United Nations, especially when it comes to considering its influence over everything the United Nations does. The purpose of the Security Council, as the United Nations describes it, is to maintain international peace and security in accordance with the principles and purposes of the United Nations, to investigate any dispute or situation which might lead to international friction, to recommend methods to, of adjusting such disputes or the terms of settlement, to formulate plans for the establishment of a system to regulate armaments, to determine the existence of a threat to the peace or act of aggression, and to recommend what actions should be taken, to call on members to apply economic sanctions and other measures not involving the use of force to prevent or stop aggression, to take military action against an aggressor, to recommend the admission of a new member, to exercise the trusteeship functions of the United Nations in strategic areas, and to recommend to the General Assembly the appointment of the Security General and, together with the Assembly, to elect the judges of the International Court of Justice. The, the Security Council is made up of 15 members, five of which are permanent members, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, China, and the Russian Federation. The UN Security Council has what is known as a monopoly of the legitimate authority to use coercive means against states. In layman's terms, it means that the Security Council can decide whether the use of force or any other means can be used against another nation. Under Chapter 7, Article 39 of the UN's Charter, the Security Council shall determine the existence of any threat to the peace, breach of the, the peace, or act of aggression, and shall make recommendations or decide what measures shall be taken in accordance to Article 41 and 42 to maintain and or restore international peace and security. And what does Article 41 and 42 state, you may ask? Well... <laughs> Article 41 states that the Security Council may decide that what measures involving the use of armed forces are to be employed to give effect to its decision, and it may call upon the members of the United Nations to apply such measures. These may include complete or partial interruption of economic relations or of rail, sea, air, postal, telegraph, radio, and other means of communication, and the severance of diplomatic relations. Article 42, should the Security Council consider the measures provided for in Article 41, would be inadequate 
or have proved to be inadequate, it may take such actions by air, sea, or land forces as may be necessary to maintain or restore international peace and security. Such actions may include demonstrations, blockades, and other operations by air, sea, or land forces of members of the United Nations. This is all extremely important to know and understand when it comes to the discussion of the actual enforcement of the UN laws. And moving on from there, we kind of want to look at some of how, or sorry, sorry, what are some of the tools the UN uses to enforce these laws and achieve some of their goals set out as we've discussed earlier in the, in the four pillars and in article one as well. And I think the most commonly known one, I think to most people, you, me, kind of anyone that's an adult where, you know, you have, you end up watching the news at some point just is You're trees. somewhat familiar yeah. with the UN, right? Yeah. 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 There's, they, they go and make treaties as a way of reaching these goals, hitting these targets and following through with what they've stated in their four pillars. So there's a couple. Um, I'm going to bring up one that's kind of an interesting one because the Montreal Protocol was the... Um, I've actually, through my jobs, have suffered through... I shouldn't say suffered through this, but I've had to learn and relearn. And then as they've changed <laughs> the type of... As they've changed the type of material they've used for um, Freon and refrigerants, they this um, treaty they signed in 1987, all 193 members of the UN are part of this. So all of them have agreed to follow it. There's 197 states in total that actually participate in this. So there's four states outside the UN that also take part in this as well. And it was basically a treaty to find more efficient ways of making refrigerant. And um, I think even in my time, which I'm like 1987's year, my parents got married and I was born four years after that. <laughs> so this treaty has been very active because I've been in the workforce now for well over a decade and it's something I've had in previous jobs where it's, Oh, you got to, we're switching it to this one this year. So you got to go and change all the labels and, and it's, you're like, Oh, okay, because it's a lighter version. It's better for the environment. So that's one of like to look at a positive, <laughs> I guess. Right. Is yeah, it's very interesting. And then I remember there was um, an article recently where they noticed that the, um, the ozone hole over the Antarctic is closing. So it seems to be working to some degree and it doesn't mean it's not everything's all rainbows and everything, but that's one example of a treaty I found curious because I didn't even know it was signed here in Montreal. <laughs> so it's named after Montreal, right? But it, there's a, a slew of treaties, obviously, that address almost every section of what the four pillars kind of outline. Because as we know, since the creation of the UN at World War II, at the end of World War II, the world has become a more dangerous place with the creation of nuclear weapons, the Cold War arms race. So there's a lot of conventions on biological like weapons in here and all that kind of stuff. There's also ones that are household names, such as the Paris Agreement, which I'm pretty sure we've all heard of because it gets interconnected with political races either here or south of the border. And it's it always it's one of those things, and we all all know that the environment is a major concern to most people in the developing and in the developed world. So there's a lot of treaties here that go and try to address that address that situation. There's um, conventions on the UN Convention to Combat Desertification, 
created in 1994, again, with all 193 members signing and 196 other, or 196 states in total recognizing it. So it's, yeah, there's, it's one tool they have where they can go about because in the general assembly as Braden generous enough to just explain to us how it works, goes about and votes to pass these treaties. And whether they're all effective or not, we'll have plenty of time to <laughs> talk about that later. <laughs> but that's one that's one way they go about achieving and using the... It's a tool that they have to go about achieving some of their set-out goals. Yeah. And there's other ones, too, which I think Braden's got some... We all were Another one we're all probably kind of heard of, but... Yeah. Probably, yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't understand the whole... But it's definitely one that is very common to you guys. I'll let you go on with that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 just to kind of also follow up for for you with the treaties, like you you touched upon, some of the treaties maybe uh, aren't as effective as like the Montreal uh, Treaty or yes, yeah, there's yeah. the one that you just mentioned. Um, yeah, but we all know it the is one's not working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are there are plenty out there. Yeah. Um, but it it is kind of that first line of a, an, an attempt to instill recognize the, the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, um, not that we necessarily t- touched upon it already, but um, like many of the things with the UN or, or any organization for that matter, it requires its members to kind of follow through um, to make sure that those things are all in accordance but it is great to see when there are some of these treaties like you said it's it's still to this day is affecting things in a positive way um yeah but uh yeah as jordan mentioned uh another tool that the un has um at its disposal is peacekeeping missions something that like jordan said i think a lot of us know or i've at least heard a lot about right at some Um, point right yeah yeah um but the the idea of peacekeeping is kind of like a uh, a bit of a broad term, so to speak, that we we use for a lot of different things. So um, there's a bit of a spectrum when it comes to peace and security missions. Um, there are five main types of phases or, or types or phases, I should say, uh, depending on the situation that the United Nations has its has at its disposal when dealing with conflict. Um, The first is conflict prevention, right? Normally through deterrence and or diplomatic channels, um, the UN attempts to ensure that tensions in a given area do not escalate to war, right? So this is before any kind of war has broken out, um, but there is the observation from the international community that tensions are rising. So what can we do to kind of quell that? Uh, Another one is peacemaking, uh, where a war has broken out. Uh, The UN is directly trying to bring hostile parties to the bargaining table to discuss a ceasefire. This still remains more of a diplomatic endeavor rather than through military force, right? So bringing the the two parties or or more, I guess, depending on the situation, um, to the bargaining table to, to... find that sense of common ground yeah. yeah let's let's put this war to rest what do you thing. need to get this to stop what do you need yeah to get this to right stop? Yeah, yeah yeah which i i think uh 
a lot of us are probably more familiar with with that kind of tool by the UN than anything yeah, well, else. Yeah, in the last six months or so, yeah, we've, we've <laughs> there's been plenty of cases to give us reasons to see that work <laughs> yeah. and not work, and definitely yeah, exactly. not work. So yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and another uh, one of those kind of phases that that is associated with peace peacekeeping missions is uh, peace enforcement. Um, so kind of similar to peacemaking, but um, this is when the Security Council gives permission for a range of measures to be used to bring about the end of a conflict, including but not limited to military force. This occurs, as mentioned earlier, only when the Security Council deems the risk to peace and security is being jeopardized by the given conflict. Because remember, all states are sovereign entities. So things like a brutal civil war may not always qualify for action by the UN, even though it would go against a lot of the things that they uphold that like Jordan has mentioned kind of throughout this episode. Um, And kind of lastly, I'm lumping these two together, but peacekeeping and peace building, Um, which, yeah, yeah. They're technically different. Yeah, they're yeah, they're technically different, but they they definitely go somewhat hand in hand. So peacekeeping occurs once a ceasefire has been achieved. Right. And it starts the process of implementing the agreed upon measures. Right. Historically, this has been about maintaining a military presence should the conflict potentially should another conflict potentially arise. Um, But in recent history, this has grown to include more of local structures like policing, governing, uh, and civilian workers. Peace building, on the other hand, is focused solely on the strengthening of institutions within the country to help ensure that violent conflict is never used as an option again. This often spans many years to be successful. An example of this is the United Nations mission in Liberia. And it's one of the shining examples of peacekeeping. Established in 2003 to oversee a ceasefire agreement after the resignation of Charles Taylor and the conclusion of the Second Liberian Civil War. The mission managed to disarm and demobilize 101,496 active combatants and local attitudes towards the mission were that an overwhelming majority of people felt that the presence was beneficial for the overall success in maintaining the ceasefire. The mission lasted 14 years and saw roughly 130,000 troops, 16,000 police officers, and 24,000 civilian staff. Now, as we've kind of already discussed, um, the UN has a, a number of different tools for dealing with international um conflicts and and yeah and 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 issues as a whole right both i guess positive and negative but um but now we're going to take a bit of a shift to what jordan and i would would feel that is a bit of a uh a little bit more along the lines of a negative side of the tools that they have at their disposal yeah, and loopholes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um yeah, things that are built in the system that maybe undermined 
uh, some of the the values that we had seen in Article One or the preamble with the, the four pillars. The four pillars, yeah, yeah. Um, so, with that being said, uh, the first one that I kind of really want to start off with is the Security Council's ability to to have veto. The Security Council's yeah <laughs> powers for vetoes. Yeah. Uh, my apologies there. Yeah, not um, vetoes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so. <laughs> As mentioned earlier, the permanent members of the UNSC uh, have the authority to veto any policy or decision put forward by the UN. Since the first time a member used its veto power, which was in February 1946, when the USSR, which was Russia after after World War or well, prior to World War Two, but um, no, no, after you're right. Yeah, well, they were the USSR was existed during. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, they were, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The USSR World War II. I'm sorry, I thought you were talking yeah, about the treaty. Pre- I was like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, but uh, just just explaining for those who who don't know, the USSR obviously is what would be today modern day Russia, um, but prior to the 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 ending of the Cold War. Nevertheless, getting on a tangent there. Um, in February 1946, when the USSR vetoed a draft resolution for withdrawing foreign troops from Lebanon and Syria, the veto has been used 293 times, give or take a few depending on when this episode is finally released. The number of vetoes used per nation, and this is, again, focusing on the permanent five members, so the USSR slash Russia has used their, their veto 143 times. The US has used it 83 times. The United Kingdom, 32. France, 18. And China, or the Republic of China slash the People's Republic of China, has used it 16 times. Better catching up real quick there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, as we'll see, actually. Um, So uh, France and the UK have not cast a veto vote. Yeah, have not cast a veto since the 23rd of December 1989, when in tandem with the US, they prevented the condemnation of the US invasion of Panama. China has used the least. However, it has cast 13 of its 16 votes since 1970. 1997, so a lot more recently they've been active. Since, since Hong Kong was repatriated. Or, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, since 1997, Russia has cast 24 vetoes, whereas the United States has resorted to the veto 16 times since the end of the Cold War. Since 2011, Russia has cast 19 vetoes, 14 of which were on Syria. Eight of the nine Chinese vetoes during this period were over Syria and one was over Venezuela. The remaining Russian vetoes since 2011 were against two resolutions related to the conflict in Ukraine. One of the, the sorry, one of the 20th anniversaries of the genocide in Serban, Serbanitsia. Wow. Learn to yeah. talk, Brayden. Serbanitsia. And one of, one on sanctions against Yemen, and one on Venezuela. The U.S. cast three vetoes since 2011, all of them on Israel-Palestine issues. 
So it does give you a bit of a sense of kind of what each of these countries uh, are prioritizing, right? The use of that veto um, has always been very politicized, right? Yeah. The, it's not necessarily what they feel is right based off of the UN it's usually uh, charter. what's serving their, their current goals, right? Exactly. Like, Russia's probably got the, the major shareholder of veto uses since the end of the Second World War. Yes. And the amount of time the Soviets would use it to block the rest of the countries from having them create more nuclear bombs. Yeah. And just the, the idea of forcing, depending on what side you're looking at things, right? It's It's kind of can be guilty of this across the board, but Oh yeah. Um, it, it's forcing things to not be UN sanctioned. So you may have, uh, a certain mission that kind of happens between a bunch of different nations that come together, but it might not be backed by the UN because one of these nations have chosen to yeah. veto. That and you said it yourself because the Americans have used a few since the end of the Cold War, and I think most of those were to to for the invasion of Iraq. If I'm not mistaken, because I was not UN sanctioned, so they would have had to use Security Council vetoes to override that. So the invasion of Iraq, they wouldn't have used their veto because no, they they would have wanted the invasion of Iraq to be a UN. Oh, correct. Yeah. Someone yeah. like, yeah. So sorry, I'm thinking, yeah, 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 yeah. I think I know. France, and this is the confusing thing, right? In the case. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, that but is nobody else did because even Russia didn't bother vetoing. Yeah. Them. No, because I think yeah. again, it was it's just one of those France things. and China, I think if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. yeah. It only takes one. And, and I believe I already mentioned that, but if I didn't already, it only takes one veto for, one of these resolutions to just get completely kiboshed, right? So um, for a lot of them, if they know a vote's not going to pass, so to speak, um, whether it be by a veto or if they know that the General Assembly is also not going to pass something, sometimes vetoes are, are not used by certain nations, right? Because um, yeah. they don't have to. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it really, you really do see when it comes to the, the Security Council veto power, um how politicized things can be yeah, yeah. sorry well, it's, no 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 to support like what you're saying there's i think it really goes to show you that for all of the good they can do that's a huge loophole that five countries can almost stop any one thing from being passed and it yeah. doesn't have to be in any of those five countries don't have to be yeah. In agreement yeah it, it doesn't have to be, be unanimous it's just one yeah it yeah. just has to, hence why the war in Ukraine is allowed to go on because Russia is the only one on the Security Council. Perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it's a, a kind of that oxymoron of, of saying it's the United Nations, but yet yeah. it's really the, the, the five main winners, I guess you could say, after World War II, right? Two. Yeah. Um, the five largest powers that were remaining. Yeah. 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 And um, to go on to that, well, to, to add to that actually is. Yeah. We have, if we go back to the four pillars here, because I just want to read. Oh, just want to read this one out again. Uh, to say to so this is under the peace and security, the first pillar, <laughs> to save yeah. succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind. Now, I'm not saying that we can't prevent every conflict, obviously, 
No. Security Council, so here you go. This is, this is in the same quote. The Security Council is the main organ responsible for maintaining international peace and security. Although other organs such as the General Assembly and Secretariat play an important role in making recommendations assisting the resolution of armed conflict. So, in within that statement, they've claimed it to also prevent conflict, and if not to prevent conflict, then giving the recommendations and assisting in the resolution of armed conflicts. Mm-hmm. So, they do, to their credit, recognize that you can't stop everything from happening. But yes. to just go back to the loophole point that we were we were just pointing out at this segment here is in certain cases the blind, the completely blind, like turning a blind eye to conflicts that are happening. Yeah, the because dis- there's the blind no disregard. Yeah, there's no benefit to any of the five major security powers maybe directly and there's mm-hmm. no benefit to anybody else because we there's conflicts you know and i have in here um iran iraq war which isn't that wasn't like um nobody knew about it. like everybody knew about it when it was happening which mm-hmm. that war for people who don't know took place in the 80s so it's, it's, we're going back 40 years this is a long this is a while ago now been but, start but not of, relative to most people that are alive today. Alive, yeah. correct. <laughs> yeah. No, true. Yeah, but you're, yeah. Like, we're going back quite a bit here. So it's... Yes. This isn't... And like that conflict wasn't... That was all over the news in the Western world and, and all over the world. It wasn't mm-hmm. an unknown conflict. And the UN was unable to prevent, A, not just the conflict, but more importantly, the use of things that are established within its four pillars that beyond the rule of law and development were the same failures that the League of Nations failed as well. Because Mm -hmm. throughout the Iran-Iraq conflict, you had cases and known cases of Iraq, um, Saddam's regime using nerve agents, which is even worse than the chemical weapons that were used during the First World War. Yeah. Because those are... made specifically to target they were created more in the modern era where they target specific parts of your body and it's not you know like it's meant to cripple the state forever yeah and it wasn't always that a, a nerve, nerve yeah. agent would kill you it's no that, and it's it, yes exactly and that's the point is it's more costly over time if you kill someone it's not it's not both horrible but yeah both terrible yeah. exactly yeah. but the, the fact that the these this was happening and the UN had really no power over it because both, or I shouldn't say both, but there were members of the Security Council that had personal or political interests on either sides of the conflict. Mm-hmm. And and I think there there's an argument to be said in, in a way that it's both there's like the the uh, the side where you have personal investment within that conflict, but then you also have the side, as we had kind of mes- mentioned, is that there's 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 an argument to be made that that the Security Council members also didn't care what happened in that war. Correct. Yes. Right. And I know that that's probably controversial, but but the and you could see that in many different cases of, of wars that have happened, as as Jordan has already mentioned. Right. Yeah. Um, because yeah, well, I also have in here as well. Um, we all know, and maybe not. Again, this I was gonna say a lot of people would not know. This yeah, isn't never, that long ago. That, again, that yeah, granted, this only yes. happened actually just maybe a few years before the Red Iraq War actually like fully started. But 
at the end of the Vietnam War, Cambodia was also a destabilized state, mm-hmm. and a gentleman named Pol Pot came to power with the Khmer Rouge. And again, this was this wasn't something that wasn't un- unknown to not just the UN but to most of the world at the time. Excuse me, sorry. And his rise to power was almost it wasn't fully televised, but it was being followed in tabloids and by newspapers and by media. And there was clear mass political callings, mass arrests and jailing of people without trials and all this stuff that the UN obviously saw happening. They they saw this happening, but obviously chose because it again, like we were talking earlier, this was an internal conflict with inside the country. Mm-hmm. So at that That's stage, a sovereignty issue. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately that, regime got to the point that even after he came to power the killings that started after were were known the mass killings and it actually got to the point that a foreign nation had to invade the country because the destabilization became so bad that even vietnam was being affected by it Mm -hmm. and this is only three or four years after the americans left vietnam so you can imagine they would they didn't really, you wouldn't think they would have anything to want to do with a conflict, but it was to the point that the refugee crisis was so bad in Cambodia that the Vietnamese army had to go in to destabilize the political situation in a neighboring country. Yeah. And in yeah. that case, you have to look at the UN and go, where in your four pillars were you missing what was happening here? Yeah, what what would it take type of Based thing, on right? what we've learned about peacekeeping, peace building, and all of this stuff that were ideas that were coined in the un back in the 1950s mm-hmm. so it's yeah, yeah there's 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 arguments for both sides of the case that they can't control everything all the time but in this case even the Khmer rouge the whole regime of pol pot was only about four or five years but it was five years nonetheless and it was five years of nothing being done in secret this was known what was happening mm-hmm so it's, yeah, like you were making a good, you, like the point you just made earlier, there's times where they can't act and there's times where they should act. Yeah, and and I think kind of, this is a bit of a segue back to you as well, but um, the crisis that happened during that time, um, though this wasn't a term, term yet, um, but Pol Pot's and the Khmer Rouge essentially committed a genocide within uh cambodia um but that kind of i guess leads to another example that i think you were going to talk about is is rwanda yes yeah which is even more recent that's within our lifetimes yeah definitely more definitely one that would be more well known i think to to most viewers and listeners but yeah because cambodia was declared a genocide it just wasn't the terminology was not used. And, yeah. Oh no, no terminology is around, but they had to go in like you and observers had to go in and actually see the extent of what was done. Yeah. Because that was once there was, I think it was after the Vietnamese invaded that UN observers went in and realized the, the body pits and the mass graves and all of that. Like they knew there was stuff going on, but they didn't know to what extent. And even to this day, the figures from the Khmer Rouge are still kind of speculative. They think anywhere between one to two, to one to three or four million people yeah. died in that time so it's yeah there's graves there it's very 
But to your point, that transitions now into an even worse one that happened relatively recently, with at least within the last 25 years, and that was the Rwandan genocide. Yeah. And that was one that, again, even even though the Khmer Rouge was all broadcasted and all that stuff, this one was as well very... The world was watching what was happening there and leading okay. up to what what the beginning of the genocide would have been was very... It wasn't hidden information. Mm-hmm. It, it, well, yeah, part of it, it was... Way. They broadcast the, half the things themselves, right? Correct. Yes, yeah. And the UN knew that there was... Uh, like a civil conflict brewing within Rwanda. Mm-hmm. And because what triggered the Rwandan genocide was, and nobody knows to this day who shot the plane down of the, the Hutu president, but somebody did. And most people believe that it was like a false flag thing where they did it so they can initiate because okay. for weeks and weeks, this the local radio was spewing out anti-Tutsi propaganda. And again, this was stuff the UN was observing and, in fact, they had, at the time, because of the refugee crisis on the Ugandan border, they had people already in Rwanda. Yeah, UN peacekeepers. Uh, peacekeepers. Yeah. Yeah, I believe. Well, yeah, because Romeo Dallaire was a peacekeeper. Yep. And that's a crisis that you have UN boots on the ground as it's happening, and because of the way we've written, they've written their laws. They couldn't even act mm-hmm. while they were, while the guys on the ground were relaying the information to what was happening on the ground to their superiors back in wherever it be Geneva or in in Holland or The Hague or whatever it is. Yeah, and New York, New York. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's like Avengers Tower. <laughs> and in that case, they they were not able like the. That I, I'm not too familiar with. It's been a while since I've read his book, but the whole Romeo Dallaire was his whole struggle in that conflict was that he wasn't able to act on the yeah. orders he was given, so he had to go and find a way to save people his own way. Yeah, but without breaching the code breaching of the charter, law. which would not allow him to draw weapons to defend them. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if you you want me to take it kind of from there. Um, but the the situation in Rwanda, like many other um, UN situations beforehand, um, depending on the 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 type of mission that was occurring, um, UN soldiers were not allowed to engage with the locals on a on a military level, unless they were fired upon, right? That was kind yes, of the, yeah. the 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 handcuffs, if you would, um, of that what, were holding yeah, back, stop them. And the and the people yeah. committing the atrocities were smart enough to know not to do that. Yeah, it it was yeah. it's crazy. Like some of the stories that you would hear, where literally you would you would see these attacks happening right in front of your eyes as a UN it's peacekeeper, nothing you can do. and you could you. You have all the means, but you have none of the um, international backing, I guess, or, or uh, jurisdiction. permission, jurisdiction, yeah, yeah um, to allow you to do that. So um, kind of on that note, uh, out of Rwanda, as awful of a situation 
that it was. Um, There is somewhat of a bright spot that did come out of it, and that was the creation of R2P, or what most people might know is called the responsibility to protect, right? And the responsibility to protect embodies a political commitment um, by the UN and, and, and international law type of thing uh, to end the worst forms of violence and persecution. It seeks to narrow the gap between member states' pre-existing obligations under the international humanitarian and human rights laws and the reality faced by populations at risk of genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity. Um, Francis, Francis Deng, uh, I, Deng's idea of state sovereignty as a responsibility affirmed the notion that sovereignty is not just protection from outside interference, rather it is the matter of the state having positive responsibility for their population's welfare and to the and to assist each other. So I guess to explain that a little bit better, <laughs> um, sovereignty prior to RTP really was kind of the be all end all. It meant that if it happened within your borders, it was your problem, your, your issues to deal with. Um, and it wasn't up to anyone else to kind of come in and, and, and make that situation better. Uh, once RGP can came into play, um, since then, the idea is that if there is a conflict, um, whether it even, whether it has multiple nations involved or even just a situation like Rwanda, where it's a bit of like a civil war or, um, parties within a, a local domestic, um, state, um, the international community, as well as the the local governments, have the responsibility to kind of do the right thing to preserve the welfare of its people, right? Um, so if a government itself is committing those crimes, then the international community has to step in. And if it's not the government that's committing the, those crimes, it's still both the government as well as the international community mm-hmm. is supposed to come together to kind of deal with those issues right so we have kind of seen um uh some of like the islamic fundamentalists right like boko haram or stuff like that yeah where uh that's not the government doing any of those things but it's it requires that the international community and the local governments to kind of deal with those yeah work that work together to deal with those things yeah but yeah i um Kind of, I think on that note, we, we, we've kind of talked about a lot of different things uh, when it comes to the UN. Definitely some pros, some cons. Um, there's a lot of structures that make up the United Nations, uh, some more con- more convoluted than others uh, <laughs> that have allowed for, I guess, some backdoors and some loopholes, depending on how you want to look at things. Um, but yeah, I don't know, Jordan, if, if there's anything in particular that you want to, to touch upon, but... I, I know for myself, uh, one of the big things that I look at when it comes to the United Nations is its connection back to democracy. Yeah. Right. Um, and how the UN is kind of looked at as like a, 
Um, for me, it's the epitome of democracy, right? Like it's the largest scale version. It's a scaled up version. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you have the general assembly. That's everybody going to vote. And we kind of touched it. Cause you just said it like, like two yeah. minutes ago, really like, UN does have its strengths and it does have its weaknesses. And it's, it's sort of like democracy in that sense, really. It has its strengths, but the loopholes in, in its own strengths are so detrimental to its own functioning that it's hard to like see it almost. Yeah. How do you reconcile? If, like, yeah, I, I was just going to say, sorry to cut you off. It, no, it's no. um like democracies, right? The UN enshrines everything that we all hold like value wise, right? Like the like yeah. idea of human rights, the protecting of others, the uplifting of those who can't um, support themselves, right? Though the, the idea of freedom, um, all of those things are, are integral both within the UN as well as uh, any, In any strong democracy, democracy right? Correct. Any real yeah, democracy. Any real f- yeah. Functioning democracy. Yeah. Yeah. But like to your point, um, like many of the democracies that we have around the world, uh, there's always, there always has to be, or I don't know if has to be is maybe the right word, but um, there always seems to be uh, a power structure that is in place within that kind of democracy. Um, and that's where we see a lot of those loopholes, right? Uh, again, Obviously, in any system, you do have to have a, a chain of command, so to speak, and someone making the decisions and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's really a question of does that power that you give those those groups or those individuals or whatever it may be, uh, like in the case of the UN for the Security Council, does that undermine everything that the UN? Well, yeah, to, to your point, the Security yeah. Council to the United Nations is almost like I'm trying to think of a good example for it on a smaller scale of like just national democracy. Um, oh my God, we're, I'm drawing a blank. Hold on. In the United States, they have uh, what is it called? You, you know what I'm talking about when they have the the Electoral College. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. The Security Council is a more high functioning version of it. <laughs> <laughs> where you can yeah the electoral just, co- college i wouldn't go wouldn't go that yeah far. i wouldn't go that it, far maybe it, oh because that's what i'm le- thinking of is um is uh lobbyists <laughs> okay yeah because i was like <laughs> electoral college wouldn't i wouldn't describe yeah it no that, no but, like the lobbyists kind of almost act the way the security council does sometimes like hey you sure you want to do that and pass that bill now <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, I I think that that's a fair point. I think the Security Council is even worse, worse. because it's, yeah. it's they are lobbyists with the power to do all the voting, so and to speak, then, right? Yeah. Like it'd be then, it'd be like your lobbyists also being your your president or your uh, congressman or stuff like that, right? Now yeah. the difference is is, is uh, <laughs> lobbyists just kind of buy off their voting power, um, as opposed to in the case of the Security Council, they just decide for themselves right like so um if it meets their political agenda then it something like that can happen versus uh things that they don't care about it kind of gets pushed to the side gets forgotten yeah yeah (laughs) no but but i i totally hear what you're saying about the idea of lobbying um because it is it's 
um, like as we discussed with our democracy episode, it is that aspect of the politicization of just about everything um, that that ends up undermining um, functioning amazing in, institutions uh, at its core, so to speak, or um, yeah, like the ideas the of the Nations. core. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like, again, you you started off our episode. Well, besides talking about the League of Nations, but um, starting off with like the first parts of the the U.N. Charter and that Article one and the preamble, uh, both of those things. uh, Really do, at the end of the day, epitomize what the U.N. is supposed to stand for. Right. The purpose of its existence, what it was founded Um, for. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's 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 trying to deal with the fact that you have those beliefs, but yet you have allowed five members of one hundred and ninety three to make or break all the decisions. Decisions, right? Yeah. Um, and that's the same kind of you don't see it translated exactly the same way into like a nation's like state level of democracy, but you do see where the same loopholes follow through almost to the letter. Yeah, because as, as long as like it's it's a weird thing, I think the UN's even worse for this in, in a lot of ways. But in a more domestic situation, like you were saying, like a democracy, whether it be whatever, Canada or the United States or whoever, right? Yeah. Um, because they have their constitutions, there's obviously a, a level of, hey, we can't make a rule unless uh it 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 can be backed up by our constitutions right our charters yeah. rights and freedoms or whatever um as opposed to the un one's a little bit looser and we have this idea of like a group being able to veto things if they don't like it um you could have like 99 percent in, in favor but yet uh a security yeah, council all is like, one vote nope. to throw it out yeah. the window yeah which which i think uh Maybe it's not quite 99%, but I think a lot of people would would look at like kind of the situation in Ukraine um, as one of those things where most UN members are on board with that conflict not happening. Um, Yeah, but you have one one or two or three and that's that's all it takes. Yeah, exactly. So in in a, a domestic democracy, you do have that situation where. Um maybe a little bit more indirectly or sneakily or whatever term you want to use it in there, um, where people get into positions of power and are able to have so much power that they can make a decision. Actually, you know what would be actually a a similar example is, is Supreme courts. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because that's an example of, of where, uh, you have all these rules, right? Like our, our constitutions all these, and all that yeah, kind of stuff. It's, found, but it, it's grounded in, yeah. Yeah. So the law or the like kind of the foundation of things is there. It's written out. It's, it's, it's there for everyone to see, but you have an institution like the security or sorry, the Supreme court where oh, yeah. they're able to interpret the law as they see fit. And that's where you yeah. can have, Things that may not um, represent like the what's the word I'm looking for, like the the uh, 
like ideals of the law or what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, I feel like the, uh, the, the, the inherent message behind a certain thing, right? Um, what, what, it, why a law is put in place for the purpose of it. Right. Um, right. The idea of if you have the right to life, right. Well, okay, yeah, yeah. obviously if you have the right to life, that's when you get into issues about the discussion of like abortion that we're seeing in the United yes, States, yeah. right? Yeah. Because it's like, how far do you want to take it, right? Or the Second Amendment. I know I'm using American things right now, but um, is another example, right? It's like, where, yeah. what, what did the founding fathers mean by that, right? Like, does it mean yeah. that everyone can have uh, an AR and and that's fine, or did it mean that is it a we user interpretation? Yeah, or is it more about militia? Right. <laughs> yeah, like having a domestic presence, like a like a the equivalent of like the national guard type of situation. Is that what yeah. you're more implying, right? Yeah. Um, and there's examples of that in, in Canada too. I, I I'm not just trying to. Oh yeah, there's use American plenty examples. of constitutions. Yeah, it's just ones that people can recognize, right? So yeah, I think a lot I of people. It's yeah. it's in the news a lot yeah. and that, that type yeah, of thing. That's, yeah, it's, that's our problem. We have up here is we like to focus on politics um, on our own yeah. American politics. Yeah, yeah which and is then we the and then we way, take yeah. it on ourselves and say like, hey, should we be questioning abortion? Should we be questioning? And you're like, and no, like, those no, things no, are settled. Our laws <laughs> yeah, here are yeah. fine. Yeah, our like, gun laws stop. are settled. Like, yeah, don't just leave it. Yeah. We're not. We're not. Whoa, we 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 signed our paperwork. They're still trying yeah. to figure theirs out. <laughs> yeah, right. Let um, them fight each other if they're not, don't, don't bring their stuff up here. <laughs> oh no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's that idea that uh, if at the end of the day we we have certain parts of our our institutions where they are given so much power, kind of similar to that Security Council. That yeah. they can shape the policy. outlook of, yeah. of policy. Yeah. yeah. Rather than kind of the spirit of the law. I think that's what I was trying to say earlier. Oh, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that uh, is the spirit of the law trying to be upheld, or is it that I'm trying to influence things by my personal side of things? So, right? In Correct. The yeah. That case of the UN. The, yeah. Yeah. In the UN, right? If, we went through all the different veto situations over the years. Yeah. Yeah. And why and, did you really do that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of them are very clear to see that it's, it's not it's, like they're hiding why they did it. Yeah. It's no, it's because <laughs> yeah. of, yeah, they have economic or political interests Interest, in those yeah. conflicts. Yeah. And that's why also you have the flip side of kind of what you were talking about with the, the blind or like ignoring conflicts and things like that, where, the UN also doesn't get involved sometimes where there wasn't even a veto in place, right? Like yeah, it was just that just there was, there was no vote because just turned their head to the fact of what was happening. Right? Yeah. Cause it's yeah. like, well, I don't trade with these people. Yeah. I don't. Cause there's a have... dozen conflicts I can name that if people heard them now, they'd be like, what? hundred <laughs> percent better. There's even conflicts that are currently happening right now. Oh yeah. We oh, that's what I mean. Get yeah. Into. Like yeah. it, the current, like people are like, where's Brutico fiasco? I'm like, well, <laughs> <laughs> It's a place where there's a lot of open warfare right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's easier to find a hand grenade there than a jaw, but like nobody knows about it. And like pointed at me on a map. Couldn't. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm not talking just about Americans. I'm talking about my own fellow like neighbors here oh, every, and stuff too. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which again, that's not to 
so like I always look at something like that. I don't expect whatever regular everyday people to just know to all know these things. Every, yeah, every single what thing. I, yeah. What we do expect is that the institutions that we have kind of put in place in life to be responsible for these things to actually own up and deal with uh, the conflict that we have in our world, right? That's the bigger thing, right? That's what kind of, I guess, the message with our situation with the UN, not that we're trying to get too much into the weeds of our personal opinion. I think it has kind of come forth regardless. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it, it is that idea that if we have these institutions, if they are supposed to be what we believe in, right? Like they, they should meet what we actually think of. Like, I, I don't know about you, but growing up in life, I held the United Nations in pretty high regards, right? Just like I yeah. hold the democracy in high regards. And it's not to say that I don't still high, hold these things in high regards, but the more you learn about them, the more you also learn that there is so many loopholes with these things. And it's like, well, it should be just an open and shut case, right? If you're, yeah, if there's violent conflict in this world, we as a people, if we have the power to do something right, you should stand up and do something right. It's like it's almost a, it's <laughs> the idea of Santa Claus. Where okay, you grow take up it. thinking that because well, yeah, yeah, you grow up thinking that, oh, there's this amazing thing. And it's like, if I do good. This guy works his butt off and he, you know, he brings me a little something, yeah. you know, once yeah. a year. And it's just like we all work together and if we're all good, we all get something from the big guy. You know, yeah. <laughs> like in the UN's like as a kid, you kind of see like when you when you're younger, anyways, maybe not a kid, but like you kind of see the UN as like this like Santa. That's yeah, like you idolize oh, maybe it's there is idealistic. this like big overwatching thing that's gonna help, you know protect us. Set all. Thi- yeah, make things right. And then mm-hmm. you get older and realize Santa's not fucking real. <laughs> Sorry for my <laughs> language, but you realize that you're like, oh, Santa's not real. But then there's that. And then you get to another level. You're like, oh, well, we all have to be Santa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I got to be Santa. That's, like, that's pretty what? philosophical in a lot of ways where it's like, because as, as funny of an example as that is, we do all have to be Santa in the sense of, we all have to, if we want something good in this world, we have to be the good in this world. Correct. You got to make it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I, I think all of us as individuals should be doing that, but I think that there's a huge onus on the institutions that say that this is what they are doing for them to uphold that. Um, Again, not to go down the rabbit hole of democracies, but like whether it be democracies or United Nations Nations as an institution, yeah, or everything in between, yeah, yeah, whatever we choose to be in a hundred years and a hundred percent, you, you, you need to be. We should be honest with what what we kind of are and what the situation is with all these things, because if if these institutions are being funded and supported and up upheld based off of uh i don't want to say a lie because that's that's very harsh i think um, but 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 being upheld over over kind of false pretenses in the sense of where they're being there's a lot of good that is coming out of the un but at the end of the day you have to remind yourself that the good that is coming out of the un is being allowed to happen rather than is it's just like that's being what the it sole exudes. focus and driving force. Yeah. Is. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, it is. Which is it, exactly what the pillars 
outline it should be. It's just yeah, back yeah. to the Santa Claus thing. It's not what it turns out to be. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's, the it's trying to do this thing. Yeah, it's, yeah. You have to believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I yeah, I think this is a Family Guy episode. They get up there and like Santa's dying. Like he's got like, like I can't keep up, and he's just. <laughs> Oh but it's that goodness. thing where it's like yeah it's like it's it's not like you get this like it's it's so easy for anything to fall into disrepair and it doesn't take long mm-hmm. you can have the greatest idea in the world and it doesn't take long yeah and, and you and you might not notice it that's the thing because it's like it's the idea it's, it's great it's there right yeah. it's like santa it's, yeah it's great he's there yeah. it's like the yes it's great it's there but like well it, and i mean the, you know like yeah is there arsenic going into our toys like <laughs> Oh, yeah <laughs> or, 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 or just like again now we've, we've we're using this analogy of santa but uh um or just that idea of we we epitomize this idea of, of santa claus and christmas time and getting presents and all that stuff but we also don't look at it from we have that belief but yet what do you do for a family who can't afford presents because mm-hmm. those parents are the ones who are like Santa Claus, right? Where yeah. it's like that kind of thing of, oh, we've propped up this thing because for you and I, it's great and we're able exactly. to afford it. And it's things. not just the UN. Like, think about democracy in the same way. It's like, oh, it's so great. But it's like, is it? <laughs> it should still, be. It that's, should be. That's, that's the, the problem. Thing. Yeah. Like, Santa should be hitting it for everybody. But it's yeah. not. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It there's, no, there's nothing inherently wrong about that. It's, it's that, yeah, in practice because of those kind of yeah yeah you don't get the... whether it be loopholes or whatever you want to call it that's where it falls short and that's yeah. where if we're not honest with the shortcomings of things that's not to say that like okay burn it all to the ground type of thing like i'm no and pro santa claus yes exactly <laughs> same yeah, yeah. Um, fire but... up the factories but yeah yeah <laughs> but there is if you I don't know, lie to yourself and lie to your children for the rest of your life. There's also some detrimental factors that come into play there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, But now that we've gotten on the topic of Santa Claus, I think that that is a great place to maybe call it for things, Uh, even though that I do think it is a solid analogy. (laughs) I had no idea where you were going to go with it at first. Start making wishes here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is see now we're starting to get into the uh, territory of what eventually the the podcast will get into, where it's way more free flowing. Yes, exactly. Yeah, not as as uh, lecture. Yeah, yeah, let me give you the facts type of thing. Right, once we once we give you that foundation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Once you have that foundation, then then you get into the the funny stuff with us. But uh, nevertheless. Um, I, I do think, and, and, and Jordan, I know you agree with this, that the United Nations is a great institution to have at its core, um, but to be blind to the its faults shortcomings, or its yeah. shortcomings, yeah, um, is does ourselves a disservice. And that's really kind of, I think, hopefully the message that you've gotten looking at some of the pros and cons and, and, and the different structures that make up the UN. Um from this episode today but as always uh we hope you enjoy enjoyed the episode we hope that you also do your own research and learn more about these these subjects just as we do here uh and have conversations with your friends and family um because you know what the more we talk about these things the 
kind of our better our understanding becomes. Yeah, but, better we understand each other. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But uh as always, he's Jordan. I'm Braden. Together we are the realist idealists, and this is Power View.